October 1789, George Washington, the first president of the United States, declared a national observance of thanksgiving. Similar declarations were made throughout the years until 1863, when President Abraham Lincoln fixed the fourth Thursday of November as a national day of thanksgiving and praise, the phrase that was used, of thanksgiving and praise. Some of us still remember a day now past when our nation became, really, it came to a virtual standstill on Thanksgiving Day. Do you remember that, some of us, older ones? It was difficult to find any business anywhere that was open that was not dedicated to the preservation of the health and safety of the citizens of this land. There was, at least in those days, an illusion that the entire nation was at rest and was giving thanks to God for His abundant provision. Such an illusion as that, that we were all thanking God, that the whole nation had stopped, such an illusion was essentially realized in Israel's national observance on the tenth day of Tishri, which would be our September-October On that day, the day known in the biblical text as Yom HaKippurim, or Day of the Atonements, today to the singular Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. As we think on that day today, and we compare it perhaps just briefly by way of illustration to our Thanksgiving dinners in an idealized vision of thanksgiving, we imagine every family in America gathered to eat of God's provision and giving Him thanks. But Israel's Day of Atonement was a day in which the entire nation actually concentrated undivided attention, not primarily on thanksgiving, though that was included, but on cleansing from sin. Imagine for a moment, if you can, a world free of sin. A world where no one ever breaks God's law. No one is selfish or proud. No one wrongs another human being. Imagine a world where every word is honest and filled with grace. Where every decision edifies others and rebuke and repentance are obsolete, unnecessary. Imagine a world where your heart is pure and every passion of your soul is holy and your conscience is entirely clear. Imagine an entire nation of genuinely repentant people. As things stand, such an environment we know is illusion. It's unattainable. And were we to enter it, we would corrupt it like a muddy dog plunging into a tub of crystal clear water. We'd ruin it immediately with our presence. But in the ritual drama God instituted for the nation of Israel, He declared a day of fasting on which the nation would come to a standstill. Everything would stop. And there would be concentration on purification from all sin and all ritual uncleanness, which we've been covering over the last few weeks. Remember the historical setting here as we come now again to the book of Leviticus and come to chapter 16. Remember the historical setting God's presence descends from Mount Sinai to this tent of meeting in the midst of Israel's encamped tribes. How will, the question remains as we enter Leviticus, God's presence is there, the end of Exodus, but how will the tent in which God's glorious and holy presence has taken up residence, how will this become the place where sinners actually meet with God? The danger one, 
going in one direction, as we've discussed through these weeks, is to protect sinners in Israel from God's holy presence. His potentially lethal presence. Because of His pristine holiness. How do we protect sinners from that holiness? And the second danger, going the other direction, how do we protect God in His holiness from the impurity of Israel? God institutes, as these questions are asked, an elaborate ritual system by which sinners may approach Him. And we've considered often these circles of separation to protect in both directions. To protect the sinner from God and to protect God from corruption by the sinner. And as we've considered this, we have mentioned throughout this series the significance of the book of Leviticus. Not a book to be set aside and seen as strange and weird myths and rituals but the very center of the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, Leviticus is answering this ultimate question. The presence of God restored among His people, connected to the garden and the expulsion of sinners from that garden. Now God working to is again His presence with His people, but how can they approach Him? Leviticus is the answer. And Leviticus answers this in a drama and that drama finds its ultimate pinnacle. So if you take the top box on this illustration of Leviticus as the pinnacle of the Pentateuch in some respects, everything pointing to Leviticus like a mountaintop of consideration. Here is how sinful people can dwell in the midst of a holy God. Now take that top box and within that box, it is Leviticus chapter 16 that is the pinnacle of the pinnacle. It's the tip of the top of the mountain. We've been working our way through the rituals of sacrifice, the priesthood and its preparation to mediate between sinners and God. We've talked about these purity laws and they really are a bit strange to us. of Skin disease and bodily fluids and what you touch that can become unclean even though not sinful. But all of it as a drama, a picture of the purity of God. And of how His presence is a danger to us in our sin and how our sin and uncleanness is a danger in a sense to Him in His purity. Not because of His weakness in any sense, but because of His holiness. Well, we work our way up chapters 1 through 7. You see in that first box and the priests 8 through 10, 11 through 15, the purity laws. We've come today to the very tip of the tip of the mountain. And that is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement observance was not an ultimate answer to the question, how does the sinner dwell in the presence of a holy God? But it was a dramatic pattern set by God to point us to that ultimate answer. And as I've been seeking to stress throughout this series, it's in coming to know this preparation that we come to fuller concept of its final, ultimate answer in Jesus Christ. It's understanding the way that God is pointing His people and steering them in these early chapters of the Bible to understand who Christ is. The Day of Atonement observance was not this ultimate answer, but it was a dramatic preparation for Christ. So let's consider the drama of ritual observance that God employs to steer His people to think a certain way about His holiness, about our purification from sin, and the way back into God's presence. As Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, the Day of Atonement rituals point the way back to His presence again. Not in an ultimate sense, but in a way that lays out specific, essential parameters. And so we start in verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, we have the historical setting here. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Again, this, this wonder how exciting that is that God is appearing here and yet the danger. Entering into that presence can mean death. And no illustration is accurate. These aren't snapshots from this moment. But just to give us a little bit of illustration by way of these slides might be helpful. Remember, as the tabernacle is laid out, there is the most holy place in which is the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark, this box, is the holiest spot in the holy of holies, of the holy tabernacle amidst the holy people. This is it. And there is that veil, that curtain, that hid and separated the holy of holies from all of Israel all the time. So as you look then at that veil, there was this altar of incense that burned before it, but passing through that veil into the Holy of Holies, there would be found this Ark of Covenant. Inside the testimony, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, and hovering above these cherubim, these angels, the glowing, bright presence of God veiled through the smoke and the cloud that filled the temple. Again, exactly what they look like. By the way, you look at the angels on top, and they always look different in every illustration, because we don't really know precisely what they look like. But you'll see them with different configurations to the wings and the like. But we, we understand. We don't have it perfectly. It's probably good we don't, or people will be building them all over the place. But we have the basic idea that this ark is behind that veil. Now, as we look at this reference to Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, it's interesting, isn't it? They're not even mentioned. They're not named. But it takes us back to chapter 10. We talked about the intervening purity laws that were here, but it goes back to the day that Nadab and Abihu entered into the presence of God on their own terms and they were struck dead in the tabernacle. It seems possible because of these words that we've just read that they tried to enter behind this veil be that as it may they were struck dead so on the one hand the holiness of god proved lethal to them and god establishes the day of atonement ritual so that this will not happen again doesn't need to happen again on the other hand their corpses defiled the tent of meeting requiring its cleansing so many of the purity laws are connected to death Death defiles. Death, the opposite of God who is the giver of life. And so as they have come into this tabernacle, into this tent, and have died, they've defiled the space. This highlights what remained an intriguing problem. The sacrificial system addressed the sins of the people by way of substitutionary sacrifice. An animal dies in the place of people. Yet in the process of this, sinners were entering into the tabernacle. Even the holy priests consecrated for this work were sinful individuals and corrupted the space. This was a continuing problem. And so the Day of Atonement was instituted to protect the priests from the potentially lethal presence of God while protecting the tent from the corruption that sinners bring into the presence of God. Simple point, in light of Nadab and Abihu's sin, God says here in verses 1 and 2, here it is, get this, do not enter behind the veil, ever. Get that figured out. That veil is there for a reason. You never go behind it. You've got that. Now, I want to talk to you about one exception. 
Do not enter that most holy place behind the veil. Verse 2. Before the mercy seat. That is the lid on top of that Ark of the Covenant. Don't go there. But, verse 3. In this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull for, from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So he comes with a sacrifice and he comes with this ritual cleansing of the water and appropriate robes. Now his regular dress... Um, there was a body in that, but uh, his regular dress made him look like a king. It made him stand out from all the people. He was a holy man in the presence of Israel. But on this day, the Day of Atonement, he wore something along these lines. Simple linen garments. On this day, he did not don the garb of a king, but the garb of a servant, dressed in simple white. Verse 5 And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. That is the goat ritual unique to the Day of Atonement. It's here described, just mentioned. It will be described in fuller detail below. But back to the bull for now. Verse 6. Again, here we're just kind of in a preliminary way laying out the day and its rituals. Verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Atonement. That is, to satisfy the anger of God against sin and thus to attain forgiveness of sin for Aaron and for his house. They must come before God with sacrificial blood to be purified. And we notice here the emphasis on for himself as the representative of the people and mediator between them and God. The high priest must first be purified by the offering of a substitutionary sacrifice. That being done, we return now to a consideration of these goats. So picture in your mind two two goats or be helped by this visual. Here are the two goats. This is helpful for suburbanites. We know what they are. You don't put a saddle on them or anything like that. But One goat described for one destiny, the other for a separate destiny. This is unique to the Day of Atonement. Verse 7. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So one goat killed and burned on the altar of burnt offering. But what does it mean that the other goat will be sent to Azazel? It's a widely debated question. A lot of ink has been poured into trying to solve it. Is four basic views. I'll just mention two, and probably through the years, a more popular view. Many Bible interpreters holding this, even those who are good, uh, solid Bible interpreters, would say that Azazel is a demon, a demon out in the wilderness, to whom the the sin now placed on this goat is sent out uh, to be devoured by this demon in a again in a ritual. Uh, figurative sense. I think a better interpretation, at least in my view, is that the Hebrew word Azazel means go away. So this goat is for going away, not for a demon, but for a process, a going away process. 
the goat to be sent away into the wilderness. Again, more on this below, but simply note here that one goat will head west by means of his shed blood, and the other goat will be sent east away from the tent. It will be the go-away goat. The ceremony now is detailed in verse 11. So we get fuller detail than this. What strikes us as strange in many of these matters, but are saying something to us. So again, get into the drama. Don't say here, how does this help me with my daily life? It's a foundation that will help us very much. But at first here, we need to get the picture of the drama that's before us. Verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull of a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coal of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Again, just pictures to help, not necessarily exactly how things look, but a sensor, a metal receptacle. Hot coals from the altar, a burnt offering are placed in this sensor. Then incense is placed on it, creating smoke from the sensor. This would have the effect entering into behind this veil into the presence of God there before that ark, this would have the effect of creating the smoke and hiding some of the brilliance of the glory of God, which could again be lethal. So a screen that shields the priest's eyes from the bright glory of God and His presence there behind the veil. The high priest then takes this censer He takes it behind the veil on this day of atonement. And some of the bull's blood is sprinkled seven times on the lid or the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It's called a seat because in a sense it is the seat of a throne. Above these wings is the glory of God hovering over this Ark. And so the Ark is in a sense a seat or a throne. Exodus 25 lets us know we're on track where it says, There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel, God says to Moses. My presence will reside there. Now this high priest has entered into that presence with the smoke of the incense, shielding his eyes to some degree from the brilliance of God's presence, and then offering blood, sprinkling it seven times on the east side, that is the front side of this ark. The high priest then atones for not only himself, verses 11 to 14, but now for the tent and the people, verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. He's going to come back in behind this veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of of their uncleanness. You notice the sacrifice is for the people, but the sacrifice here is also for the holy place. A purification ritual to cleanse the tent itself from the pollution of humanity. Now there's nothing evil about the furniture of the tabernacle, of course. But the people corrupt the tent. 
Notice that the high priest is to even work here in isolation. After all of his cleansing, the washing, the clothing, the sacrifice of atonement, the blood brought in on his behalf to allow him into this area, it's almost that God is saying, we've got this guy clean, now don't get it messed up with anybody else. Just the high priest. And this one time a year coming behind this veil to make atonement for the people. So into the pristine environment he comes and applies the blood of sacrifice for sinners. There's clear biblical steerage here all along the way. We see it. And we, as we understand the New Testament within the New Covenant, we see the connectors to the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, in the, as we understand it in the New Testament, is not God saying, well, I blew that, let's start all over, I'll try something else. The two are carefully connected. And in this Old Covenant system, this ritual that God gives to His people, there are connections and directions to us to where to look as we enter into a New Covenant relationship through a different sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. We notice here the sacrifice again is for the holy place to purify it. But that steerage then that we find in this ritual is that there is only one mediator. There's one person who comes between the sinful nation and God. This one person representing them. One man defiled paradise and was expelled eastward away from the garden. Here we have one man seeking to reverse the curse, coming westward with the blood of an animal placed between the law of God, the testimony, and the presence of God in all of His holiness. A westward movement to restore the relationship between God and His people, to purify where God's presence dwelt among them. Verse 17, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. When he speaks here of atoning for, or uh, in this ritual way, applying blood to the altar of uh, to the altar, I think he's speaking of the altar of burnt offering. And uh, though every graphic I can ever find has things I'd like to change, I'm not an artist, so I can't draw it the way I'd like. Some of these things seem to be a little off kilter and whether directed, but I like this graphic because it points us to the altar there at the front. I think this is what he's anointing with the blood. This altar that's right there where the burnt offerings are offered. So he's gone into the presence of God with this blood and now comes back and anoints this altar, a burnt offering, looking something along these lines. We come at verse 20 back to the go-away goat, sometimes called the scapegoat or escape goat. But as we come back to that goat, we're noticing again this directional emphasis. The priest has gone from the altar behind the veil, applying blood for himself, for his house, for Israel. We've seen that. But what we now see in direction is the priest in his ministrations heading the other direction, eastward. And this is where the go-away goat comes in. But I think, think of this, it's almost as if the tabernacle is being flushed of all of its uncleanness, working back to the presence of God with the blood of a sacrifice, and then working away and flushing out the sin and the uncleanness of God's people. Verse 20, When He had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, 
All of that now covered. He shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. That is, there's a man who would take it out there and make sure that what needed to happen with it happened. And that would be that it would never find its way back. The goat, verse 22, shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. It's clearly an illusion. It's a drama. It's an illustration. But as Aaron places his hands on the head of this goat, it is receiving in a figurative sense the sins of the people. So the cleansing has taken place westward into the tabernacle and it is now the sin being flushed out and sent out into the wilderness on the head of this goat, this substitutionary go-away goat, pictures the utter removal of the sinner's guilt. Do we see the wonder of this? God laid out this ritual on purpose. He meant to teach us something through it. And we see the wonder of these two goats and what they represent. For those who gather with us here today who are separated from Christ, you do not have a living relationship with God. You don't have any confidence that you could enter into the presence of God and live to tell about it. For you, the need is to focus on that first goat. All of this ritual points to the death of a substitute in your place. What blood has been shed for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have no answer to that, you need to focus on this first goat and know that it is pointing us to the shed blood of the final and ultimate sacrifice. God working with His people here to steer you today as a Gentile to understand that this sacrifice is fulfilled and epitomized in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. His sin atones. His, his death atones for your sin. This is the wonder of those who come to repentant trust and faith in what Christ has done. The understanding that His death in my place, pays the penalty of my sin. This is the provision God has made, steering us to see it this way and then leading us to Christ. What you need to see is this first goat in the imagery here. Hebrews 9, as we've read earlier today, says that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, can I put in a quick commercial? Think about what this means in light of Leviticus 16. If you don't know Leviticus 16, how poor you are. But we're equipped here. The good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, a different ritual, not in this Day of Atonement, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's not just a stupid ritual that's past its shelf life and we can just dismiss it. The Day of Atonement is meant to help us understand the death of a substitute. And that substitute ultimately is Jesus who enters not behind this temporary veil, but it's a picture of entering into the very presence of God and not with the blood of an animal, with His own blood. To atone for our sin. If you've trusted that message 
And your full and absolute dependence is not on yourself. You do not cling to your sin, but you have turned to Christ and you've trusted His work in your behalf to pay the penalty of your sin. And there is a joy in your soul that you have repented, that you have been born again. Then we can focus on the second goat. What a wonder this picture presents. Our sin, guilt, is truly removed. Not in part, but the whole. It's gone. It's run off. There may be people in your life who will labor to keep, you, keep the guilt of your sin pinned on you for the rest of your days. And one of those people may be you. But we learn here in this goat sent away with the sins on it that where atonement is made, there can be a sending off and a removal of all the guilt of our sin. As far, think of it, as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions. And I know there's lots of cute things said about you go north and you'll eventually go south, but you can never stop going west and never go east. That maybe is part of what's meant there. But as far as the east is from the west is described here in beautiful terms. Atonement west coming back to the renewed presence of God on earth. Where Eden was lost, where the garden When the fall took place, there was an expulsion eastward. As far as the east. I'm pointing west, so I'm trying to get that right from your. (laughs) As far as the east is from the west. So far as he removed our transgressions. If the atoning blood of Jesus Christ has paid the penalty of your sin, we need to continue to confess our sins. We need to continue to repent of our sins as is appropriate. But where His shed blood atones for your sin, the guilt is gone. Not because you deserve that. Not because I deserve that, but because of His grace The goat is gone. If we've genuinely repented, the forgiveness of Christ removes the guilt of our sin as far as the east is from the west. Take it home. And let's rejoice. How good is our God. Cleansing for Aaron and the people described again in verse 23. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall... Uh, wash for his clothes, shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come back into the camp. The filth is flushed. And the day is done. The ritual ends. And Aaron and his and the people's duties then are described in response to this ritual. Verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Here are the responsibilities of the people to afflict themselves. That doesn't mean to beat themselves. 
It's a word for fasting. But fasting with self-examination and appropriate repentance. Acts 27 and verse 9 refers to the Day of Atonement simply as the fast. The fast. This is the fast in Israel. Sabbath, we find here in these verses. No work, no active play, a focus on God. The whole nation came to a standstill to think about cleansing from sin. So everyone is at rest. Everyone is focused in prayer. No one is eating. No one is drinking. They have set aside all nourishment to think about not what they're doing because they've not been called to the tabernacle as the people of Israel. They're thinking about what the priest is doing in their behalf. That's the day. And it indicates to us that the rituals of the Day of Atonement were not effectual in and of themselves. That is, that the attitude of the people, the cooperation of the people was essential. This concept speaks against, uh, some will have knowledge of these things. Give me just a moment to, to, be, uh, to consider it with those who would understand. But in the Roman Catholic doctrine, there is in the Latin, ex opere operato. The idea is in the application of the sacrament, it really doesn't matter who's thinking what, it just is the sacrament itself has its power in and of itself. We're steered here a different direction. We're steered a different direction even as we apply this to the Lord's Supper. The ritual is important. It's a matter of obedience to God, but it's not ex opere operato. It doesn't have an effect just by itself. Your attitude and mine and the attitude of these in Israel on the Day of Atonement was utterly essential. God is not in love with ritual. He calls upon the heart to respond. The sacrifice is atoned for sin, but only as the worshiper participated from the heart. It's not the ritual that glorifies God itself. It's the worshiper who glorifies God. I think we see that in sketchy terms here, in simple terms, or subtle terms, I should say, in these verses. The high priest duty, verse 32, is summarized. The priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Once in a year, the sacrifices of atonement being offered every single day. But this ritual on this day is the top of the pinnacle of the mountain of entering into the presence of God, coming westward with blood, reversing the eastward expulsion into this temporary picture of a renewed cosmos as Adam, in a sense, the high priest, enters into the presence of God. And they will come, verse 32, in the Father's place. That is a perpetuation of the priestly order and the Day of Atonement ceremony. It's not just for this Day of Atonement. It's for the Day of Atonement year after year after year. So what I think we need to take with us is that on this Day of Atonement, the world stood still for Israel. Unlike other festivals God instituted, common Israelites, again, were not called to gather at the tent of meeting, but to contemplate at home on this day what the high priest was doing. It was a Sabbath. It was a day to fast, to pray, to repent. And they contemplated the necessity of total cleansing from sin in the midst of a ritual system that forced them to think about cleanness and uncleanness with everything they ate, with every rash that showed up on their skin, with just normal bodily functions, always thinking about the holiness of God. But on this day, this was the fast. This was the day it was referred to at times by the rabbis. 
here sin was cleansed. We're pointed then to the greater and consummate and final high priest through all of this. The only mediator between God and man, the God-man Jesus Christ. Through this story, through this account, this act or play, we're led to anticipate one man. We're led to anticipate one mediator to step forward between us and God. The Day of Atonement ritual drama stresses that Israel's priests had to seek purification first for their own sins. And that doesn't strike us right. And then to seek forgiveness through the blood of an animal. And that doesn't strike us properly. And it shouldn't. But Jesus was a priest of a different order, a divine nature, and the guarantee of a better covenant. And so it's all pointing us, as Hebrews 7 indicates, to Him. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is the priest, Jesus Christ, to which all of the system pointed. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He fulfills this picture. As chapter 10 of Hebrews says, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. What did the priest do? He got dressed, he washed, he left. He finished up his duties. Christ sat down. It was over. The task of redemption was complete. And He waited. He waits now from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's no day of atonement followed by a day of atonement followed by a day of atonement followed by sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. He's the final sacrifice. He is the one to which it all pointed. God steering us to think of one mediator, one man, the blood brought into the presence of God. This Christ did as He entered into the Holy of Holies in the presence of the Creator and Sustainer of the universe and offered His blood in our behalf. As a new Adam... He provides the way back to Eden, back to fellowship with God lost in the garden. And as stunning as it is, it is no wonder in light of the rituals of atonement that we see here that on the day Jesus died, the curtain veiling off the Holy of Holies, although the presence of God had long left, the curtain veiling off the Holy of Holies just fell apart. It split on its own and was down. Entrance now into the holy presence of God has been paid by the final priest. This divine act signaling that the ultimate sacrifice had been made. A sacrifice no high priest was ever capable of making. And in this redemptive work, we're being pointed in other directions as well. And that's that Jesus has sowed the seeds of future renewal when not merely the tent of meeting is cleansed, but when the entire cosmos will be freed from sin's curse and purified and made new, Romans 8. We can hardly comprehend. Even stopping to think about it, we can hardly comprehend what a world without sin would look like. But Christian, take heart today. Such a world is coming. Such a world has been won by Christ. It's just a matter of time. And when that keenly anticipated day arrives, it will be a cause for never-ending celebration. And here we continue to be pointed. For on this tenth month, seventh month, this month of Tishri, there was the Day of Atonement, this solemn day of fasting and contrition and repentance. But it was followed soon after by the festival of booths or tents, a festival of celebration, a festival of fellowship 
as people camped outside celebrating God's goodness to them. How fitting. We anticipate a day when the entire universe is flushed clean of all of its sin and we are transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus. And on that day, imagine what it will be like to be free of sin, living in a sin-free environment. It will be a scene of eternal celebration. And our call as a church to those who are separated from that coming day, would be come to Christ today. Find in Him your inheritance and find in Him the One who mediates a new covenant between sinners and God coming into His presence. This future is ours. The day when sin is gone, it's history, and death is dead because of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we have been praying, we ask that the Word of God would take deep effect within our souls, that You would steer us to the wonders of Christ and that we would exalt in Your glories. Bring to Jesus those separated from Him and purify those of us who know You. We are very aware of our sin, but we thank You for the blood applied to the mercy seat the blood that atones and pleads for us. Christ Jesus, our sacrifice. And we thank You for this picture of the goat sent out into the wilderness never to return. In all of its darkness and loneliness and death, free to go, but a freedom that was terrifying. We thank You that that is the end of our sin for the guilt to be gone and for the standing of righteousness to be enjoyed. And as it is, I pray that we would bring glory not to ourselves and our goodness, but that we would bring glory to Christ, crucified, risen, coming again, and the One who will reign and redeem this cursed earth for His name and for the good and the joy of His people. To this end we pray and seek your face through Christ. Amen.